2: Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak and I'll be your host. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Sam Ehrman, author of Almost Citizens, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Constitution and Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Dr. Ehrman is professor of law at the University of Southern California. Almost Citizens recounts the story of how Puerto Rico came to be part of the United States Empire at the turn of the 20th century. More specifically, Ehrman looks at how Puerto Ricans, U.S. legislatures, presidents, judges, and a bevy of other people debated how Puerto Rico would be incorporated into the United States. The nexus of this debate centered on whether or not Puerto Ricans would be full citizens of the United States, a debate which had a long-lasting impact, impact for the island and its people. Dr. Erman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to study this topic, how you became interested in this topic?
1: Sure. So I'm interested in the question of citizenship, who is a citizen and what does citizenship get to you? And as a historian, I like to look at things at the places where people are fighting over them um, and where their meaning is the most up for grabs. And so Puerto Rico in the early 20th century is a great place to look because it's just been annexed by the United States after a war with Spain. And it's unclear if Puerto Ricans are citizens or not for almost 20 years. And it's also unclear what it would mean if they were citizens. And Puerto Ricans are litigious. They're going to court. They're going before administrative agencies there's just a lot of people fighting about citizenship, which gives us a chance to see what they were thinking and how they described it.
2: And so for our listeners who are less familiar with how Puerto Rico became part of the United States, could you give a brief overview of how that came to be?
1: Well, the United States and Spain went to war in 1898, and they went to war over Cuba. So Cuba was having a revolution to try to Free itself from Spain. It was a colony of Spain. And there was a lot of support for Cuba in the United States. And also, there was this long time sense that the United States might annex Cuba one day. And so, during the war with Cuba, the United States ended up um, taking over the major harbor in the Philippine Islands and also invading Puerto Rico. And when the United States won the war, the United States ended up making Cuba um, an independent country within its sphere of influence and actually annexing both Puerto Rico and the Philippines.
2: And so to get to the book itself, I think the first thing that struck me about your book was just the cover itself. It's this picture of, you know, Uncle Sam seemingly chastising um, children that are supposed to be depicting uh, the colonies. And so what does this picture mean? Why is why did you choose it to represent your book? How does it kind of represent this time period that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, um, I love this picture. And so for our listeners who may not have it right in front of them, um, I'll describe it quickly. So it's a picture of Uncle Sam as a teacher at the front of a classroom. And the first row of students are just on a bench. And it's the four islands that have recently been annexed, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Hawaii, um, and Guam. And they're they're kind of lolling around on the bench. They look like caricatures. Uh, they do not look like good students at all. And then behind them are a bunch of figures who are drawn much more realistically, and they're sitting neatly at actual desks. Um, and then in the background, you see there's a Chinese student who's drawn stereotypically, and he's outside the door. So that's the Chinese exclusion policy of the period. There's an American Indian student sitting in the way back who's turned his book upside down. So there's some message there about American Indians being unassimilable. And then there's an African-American child who's not being taught at all, who's cleaning the windows. And I chose this image because I think if you understand this image, you understand quite a lot about the entire historical period that I'm studying. So, it's an image about how people thought about different racial groups in stereotypical ways, what they thought the possible futures were for them. And the basic message is one of ambivalence. So, on the one hand, the students in the front row, these new islands, Puerto Rico and the others, it just doesn't look like they're ever getting off that bench. Um, and if you look in the very far background at some of the other minority groups, you have the sense of there's a future that does not involve them getting to be like normal states that get the full education and get depicted as realistic figures. But then at the bottom, there's this caption that says, If you study, you get to be in the class ahead. And that's Uncle Sam talking. And so there's this idea that maybe there is a path towards statehood um, and toward whiteness. And the Interesting part is Alaska also appears in the picture, and Alaska is drawn as a stereotypical character, but is seated at a desk with all of the other state students. And so the notion seems to be you might not get to be fully white, but you might get to be fully included anyway. Um, And that ambivalence between democratic ideals of the United States and a racism that was so omnipresent, it was hard for people to imagine things any other way. Um, I think that is the key story of the historical period that I study.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting, especially since, as you point out in your book, you know, even though this is kind of starting off right at the turn of the century, this is really a story about Reconstruction in America, you know, the period after the Civil War, when there's the potential for some radical change, there is some radical change, but at the end of the day, it doesn't exactly go as far. And so you speak in the opening pages about um, the Reconstruction Constitution, as you Uh, Name it. What is this and why is it so important?
1: The Reconstruction Constitution uh, is what I call the new constitutional settlement that emerges after the Civil War and during Reconstruction. And it's basically this aspirational, far reaching, uh, progressive set of constitutional commitments. And they include things like commitments to equality and commitments to broad participation in politics. And over the late 19th century, lots of pieces of the Reconstruction Constitution seemed to erode. So the Reconstruction Constitution was put in place primarily in response to the end of slavery. And it was a way to say to newly freed slaves, you are going to get to be full participants. Many of the people who crafted the Reconstruction Constitution did not think African-Americans were their equals uh, in terms of intelligence or capability. They were beholden to the racism of their day. But the promise was one of at least formal equality. You would get the vote. You would get the rights. And Southern white supremacists were very good at dismantling that at finding ways to ensure that African Americans' belonging was less than full. By 1898, when the war with Spain happens, African Americans in the United States are not in a great position at all. The Reconstruction Constitution has eroded for them. But there were some parts of it that still mattered for questions of expansion. The Reconstruction Constitution had stood for the proposition that all Americans, other than American Indians, were citizens, that anywhere within U.S. borders, the full constitution applied, and that any place within U.S. borders, other than the capital, was either a state or would become a state. And that meant that if you annexed the new place, the people there became citizens with full constitutional rights, And the place you annex would eventually become a state and its population would get to vote for president and senate, house of representatives, and unconstitutional amendments. And because many places the United States thought of annexing included large populations of color and American politicians were fairly racist in this period, there was a freeze on annexations until 1898. and so when they restarted in 1898, the Reconstruction Constitution is standing there, um, threatening consequences that many leading Americans didn't want. So it was threatening to say the Philippines and Puerto Rico will be states one day filled with citizens.
2: And I find it interesting the way in which the Reconstruction Constitution, as you mentioned in the book, is Also influenced kind of by the the ghost of Dred Scott and Roger Taney's decision in that case. And that, uh, as you put it, if I'm understanding it correctly, that the case really should have, at least in during this time period, would have incorporated places like Puerto Rico or the Philippines and given them the rights that you described just now.
1: This is one of those wonderful ironies of history. So the Dred Scott decision, we think of it as having been overturned by the Civil War. But it was actually cited you know, throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it wasn't only cited as, that's the horrible thing, you should never do again. Sometimes it was cited as, that's binding precedent that we have to follow. And the way it worked was, the Dred Scott decision said, The United States is basically made up of states and when the United States annexes a new place, that place is a future state. There will be no perpetual colonies here. And as a result, the full constitution will apply in that new place. When people go there, they will get their rights the same as if they were in a state. And the Civil War and the 14th Amendment overturned a part of Dred Scott, the part that said that free African Americans were not citizens, but less clear was whether it had overturned the entire case or whether it had excised the worst parts and left the rest of it there. And so in the early 20th century, folks who want Puerto Rico to be a state or who want it to have full rights Sight to the Dred Scott case. They hold it up and say, no perpetual colonies, full constitutional rights. That's what Dred Scott stands for. And intriguingly, the folks who want Puerto Ricans not to be citizens, who are in favor of colonial subjection, also point to the Dred Scott case. And they say, we get it. The 14th Amendment overruled the narrow holding that free African Americans cannot be citizens. But the Dred Scott case also stands for the proposition that the Constitution permits there to be Americans who aren't citizens. That's what free African-Americans were before the Civil War. And now we want Congress to revive that status for Puerto Ricans um, now that we've gone back to empire. And so Dred Scott has this interesting status as being a case that both sides think helps them and hurts them, and a case that you can both say, look, it's Supreme Court precedent. It still has a lot of authority. And you can say, it's the worst decision in the history of the court. It should have no authority at all. And so people talk out of both sides of their mouth about it all the time, which leads to the strange spectacle of you know, 50 years after the Dred Scott case is decided, people are still talking about it all the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think of Dred Scott, you know, surviving in some form after the Civil War. And it's something that I would imagine a lot of people don't know about. And I think your book really highlights the significance of that case. And speaking of, you know, all these different people who are using the case and plenty of other arguments uh, to try and make a, the Arguments for their own side. You introduce us to three men from Puerto Rico, and they kind of help us, you kind of use them to guide us through these years. So, who are these men, and kind of how are they important to uh, Puerto Rican statehood and citizenship? These men
1: are named Federico de Domingo Collazo, and Santiago Iglesias. And they are all men. Um, who claim whiteness, who are Puerto Ricans, and who agitate around citizenship a lot. And I chose them because they occupy different niches in Puerto Rican life, uh, but also are all engaged on what is the animating concern of the book, which is citizenship for Puerto Ricans. So Federico de gato is a politician and a lawyer and he cuts his teeth under Spanish imperial rule where he's part of a liberal coalition in Puerto Rico. And he's quite successful. He gets elected to the Spanish parliament. Um, And his goal is to get some kind of self-government for Puerto Rico, full rights for Puerto Ricans. uh, And he's already a citizen or a subject of the Spanish empire. So the status is somewhat secure. Santiago Iglesias is actually born in Spain, in Europe, and he's born to a working class family, moves to Cuba and then to Puerto Rico in his early 20s. And there he quickly becomes a labor activist within Puerto Rico. Um, Because he's born in Spain, he has the ability to claim a slightly higher status under Spanish imperial rule. But because he's also a radical labor guy who, you know, stirs up trouble, he ends up in prison. And after the United States takes over, he emerges as the top labor leader in Puerto Rico over a number of years. And he consistently sees citizenship as something that would help his cause, that would allow him to bring claims before federal officials. And then Domingo Collazo is someone who is born in Puerto Rico, he's a member of the artisan community there, Um, he's a printer, and he migrates to the United States uh, in the 1880s. And there he gets involved in revolutionary politics, aiming to throw Spain out of Puerto Rico and Cuba. And so those politics tend to be somewhat racially egalitarian, and he joins the part of the movement that's most racially egalitarian, And so, on both questions of Spanish rule and on questions of the role of race in society, he's a radical. When the United States goes to war with Spain, he realizes there's going to be no revolution in Puerto Rico. And so, he joins up to help the United States invade Puerto Rico, thinking that U.S. annexation may be better than Spanish rule. So, he comes into U.S. rule with this view that kind of a racially egalitarian society, um, full democracy, power to the people, lots of rights would be great, and that he's just made a choice um, between kind of a bad thing for him, Spain, and an uncertain thing, the United States, but that he didn't get the thing he most wanted, which was a homegrown insurrection that then created Puerto Rico as a separate nation. And then the book basically follows the three of them as they kind of come to the United States with the hopes and strategies they've forged under Spanish rule and start learning about the United States and testing out sort of what they can get from the United States and in what ways they'll be disappointed.
2: And I think for me, one of the kind of nuances that I really appreciated about your book was that, you know, it doesn't just start with, you know, the Spanish American war and it is just from the U.S. perspective. Not only are you bringing in uh, Puerto Ricans into this conversation, but you're also and I really, I really like this and you kind of mentioned it here. You're talking about how they are actually pushing for their separate agendas before the U.S. even comes into the picture, and they're kind of just blindsided by the United States declaring war and then, you know, taking over the island.
1: Yeah, that's right. So they have, there's this real sense of rupture when the United States arrives, Um, and it's also interesting to note that there's a sense of rupture the other way, too. So, the United States has been dismantling its Reconstruction Constitution for 30 years by the time it annexes Puerto Rico. And there are those within the United States who think, well, the next thing we need to do is dismantle the part of the Reconstruction Constitution that brings citizenship and statehood and rights to annex places. And what they may not have foreseen is they were annexing an island that was populated with some very sophisticated actors who had long struggled in the legal and political spheres of a major world empire. And so all three of these men both have a lot of strategies that they've already developed, um, that they try to adapt to the new situation, and they're smart and savvy. They have adapted to big shifts in spanish governance over the last few decades and so they quickly learn where the pressure points are in the united states and start bringing various challenges to get what they want Um, and so there's there's this way where they're shocked but i think they also are kind of shocked to the u.s legal political system
2: yeah and so you you talked to us about, you know, these men that you kind of used to guide us through uh, this story. But I think one of the most compelling parts of your book is when you talk about a woman called Isabel Gonzalez. So who is she and, and how did you even find out about her?
1: Isabel Gonzalez is um, Domingo Collazo's niece. And the entire project in some ways has been my failure to find things out about Isabel Gonzalez. So this project began with a lawsuit, Gonzalez versus Williams. And she was the litigant in the lawsuit. And she was stopped at Ellis Island. Uh, Immigration inspector said, you're coming from Puerto Rico to the United States. You don't have a husband. You have kids. You don't seem to have a lot of money. Um, We're worried you're going to go on public assistance. and Puerto Ricans might not be citizens. So we're going to treat you like you're an alien and order you deported. And then she files a lawsuit and ends up before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, we don't have to decide if you're a citizen, but we know you're not an alien. So you can't be deported under the law because the law only applies to aliens. And so this really intrigued me. Um, Who is this woman who seems to You wouldn't think someone in that situation would have a lot of resources to draw on. And yet she manages to bring this challenge that's quite successful, right? She fights the federal government and wins. And that's what led me to these three men. So the first thing I discovered about her was she files the lawsuit because her uncle Domingo Collazo sweeps in, gets in touch with her. He's the one who files something on her behalf. Um, she gets the best lawyer for these kinds of suits in the country to represent her. And then she draws Federico de gato into the case. He's the lawyer and politician um, we spoke about earlier. He has become the representative of Puerto Rico uh, in the United States. And so he's the top elected Puerto Rican, and he goes to the Supreme Court to argue on her behalf. And through those two, there in endless interaction with Santiago Iglesias, the labor leader. And so the book in some ways was, you can imagine it as a giant donut where as I'm trying to learn about Isabel Gonzalez, what I keep finding out about is these three other men who are around her. And they're trying to use her case to advance their own agendas. Um, and then I learn more about their agendas. And I only started to find out about her rather late in the story. Um, So, And it was a lucky break. So at a certain moment, her great-granddaughter sent me an email and said, I'm a genealogist, and I've been researching my great-grandmother, and I saw you mentioned her in an article. And we started comparing notes. And that was when we kind of blew the thing wide open and were able to start finding out a lot more about her trajectory. And so we were able to piece together who her family members were going back a bit, um, where people were born, when they migrated, uh, what kinds of economic circumstances they were in. And one of the key things we discovered was that she had a marriage neither of us had known about. And so... This was, the family had this story that she'd been married to a gentleman in Puerto Rico. And only late in the game did we realize gentleman in Puerto Rico in Spanish is Caballero, and that's actually a possible last name. And when we looked it up, we were able to go back to the church records and discover she had had a brief marriage that ended when her husband died young of tuberculosis and that's why she was at Ellis Island shortly thereafter. She had two kids. Um, They had both been conceived in marriage, so she looks like she's someone who's an abandoned woman or never married um, and thus not very honorable to immigration inspectors, but it turns out that she actually does meet the rules for honor in Puerto Rico just in ways that had escaped the historical record, and judicial notice for a very long
0: time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: It's pretty fascinating the ways in which your your own research just kind of, you know, as you said, you know, explodes at a certain point when you just get a random email from someone who happened to see something that you wrote.
1: I mean, it is the new, it's the new reality for historical research that everything's connected. So there's so many things in this book that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. Um, You can now do text searches for people's names, and so it's possible to find all the letters to the editor she wrote in dozens of different newspapers. And these are just, you know, a hidden away paragraph on page 20, but you can sort of make them come up to the surface. Or with Domingo Collazo, it's a pretty unique name, and he's someone, he ended up being a party boss in the 1920s in New York. so. He had a certain amount of prominence, but he was not the center of anybody's history of the United States. But with the ability to to do text searches now, you're able to pull together little pieces on him from lots of different sources, right? Google and databases have transformed your ability to research individuals. And at the same time, the rise of interest in genealogy makes the kind of collaborations I did much more possible and the rise in interest in genealogy makes searching for people in historical records much more possible. People have started indexing all sorts of things, census records, it manifests. And so the vision of the historian with a stack of index cards in a single archive um, is increasingly out of date because the historian has all of these other tools now that just allow for really interesting kind of insights and cross-fertilizations.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting how, you know, you're able to find just this one woman and find out so much information about her through and and end up finding information about all these other men and kind of being able to form this story around, you know, coming out of this one Supreme Court case, which you mentioned uh, was a narrow ruling. And so your book is mostly about people outside of the Supreme Court. You know, it's if people are familiar with, you know, constitutional history literature, they might be expecting a court history, which your book really isn't. It's about the people involved here, um, both government officials and non-government officials. So how is your book kind of changing our ideas about the ways in which constitutional change happens?
1: One of the fascinating things about this story is it's a genuine constitutional counter-revolution. There is a settled conventional wisdom about major constitutional issues. Who gets to be a citizen? What places get to be states? What rights apply where? And across a period of about 25 years, the answer to all three of those questions flipped. And yet there's no blockbuster case you can point to that says that happened. And so one of the puzzles at the beginning of the project was how can you have large-scale constitutional change that's not detectable in any particular case? That's certainly not what I was taught in law school when we were taught that you can read appellate opinions and see the development of law and figure out what the law is just by seeing what the judges have said. And what emerged from this was a realization that this was an area where the court wanted to work in concert with others. So the court had a sense that the Constitution did require certain things, and the court also had a sense that the United States was engaged in a grand experiment in empire and that it would be very bad if the experiment failed. And so the justices were caught. Between these poles. On the one hand, they wanted to be true to the Constitution or at least not violate it. And on the other hand, they wanted their nation to succeed or at least they wanted not to be responsible if something went wrong. And what they ended up doing was making decisions that hinted at solutions without declaring them outright. So they would first canvas the field and see what other officials in the government were saying about Puerto Rico and the Philippines. What kinds of powers did they need? What kinds of rulings would make things hard for them? Then they would issue rulings that were narrow, like in saying, look, Puerto Ricans aren't aliens, but we don't have to decide if they're citizens. And that was sort of floating the idea that Puerto Ricans might be Americans who weren't citizens. And then they would, having sent that signal, step back and let the rest of the government take that idea out for a spin. And then they would see whether or not it worked. And the result of this is they didn't didn't have any big declarations of doctrine, really, for quite a while. And when they did in the 1920s start finally saying, "Okay, here's what the doctrine is, what they declared was still relatively thin. So they eventually said there are places called unincorporated territories, Puerto Rico and the Philippines are these kinds of territories, and in those territories, the Constitution applies differently. You get fundamental constitutional rights, but you don't necessarily get other constitutional rights. As to citizenship, they've signaled pretty strongly that if you're born there, you're not a citizen, but they've actually never held that. Um, And as to statehood, they've signaled pretty strongly that these places can be held outside of statehood indefinitely, but they've never held that either. Uh, And they've also not really clarified what rights it is that you get when you switch from unincorporated territory to a traditional territory or unincorporated territory. Um, And so here we see a court that's able to shift constitutional meaning without big holdings, um, and we're able to see lots of officials other than judges, War Department administrators, and congressmen, and presidents who are able to shape the law um, without ever having to be in a position to give an authoritative statement of what the law is. And my suspicion is that this happens more than people think, that there's a tendency to look at the big cases, they get the headlines, they're exciting, people gravitate toward them, uh, but there's lots of law changing all the time and there's lots of benefits to courts in making some of those changes not be visible because it maintains the illusion that the law is consistent across time and that judges are just neutrally applying it, that they're not always engaged in the business of changing the basic rules of life in the country.
2: Yeah, I mean, for as someone who studies citizenship myself, but far earlier, um, you know, I don't, I don't look into twentieth century. I do citizenship at the turn of the nineteenth uh, century myself. I've really found it interesting the way that you're able to tell this story about constitutional change without looking to the court, because for myself, you know, the court isn't really ruling on many things that I'm looking at, um, but there's certainly change going on. And I think for historians of this time period, you know, at the turn of the 20th century and through the 20th century, you know, it's easy to look at the court because they are active in many areas, uh, you know, and there's definitely a lot of outcry against them in certain areas, especially when we talk about, you know, economic rights and everything. But you're really able to craft a story about major constitutional change where the court is, you know, pretty much willingly taking a back seat to it.
1: That's right. And I, I like the mention of how things look different 100 years before, because I'm looking at a period where the notion that the court gets the final say, that they're supreme, um, that notion, everyone more or less kind of tips their hat at it. But it's not entirely obvious. It's embedded and fully set up in the period I study. It seems much more. Right, it's much more institutionalized in our moment today than it was 120 years ago. And certainly 120 years before that, um, it wasn't at all clear, right? Other actors were making many of these decisions, and the role of the court was really being developed. Uh, And I think the so, in an earlier period, it's easy to see change happening outside the court because sometimes the courts just weren't doing much, right? Other it was others who were doing all the doing. In my period, I have the benefit of a lot more records, which helps a lot. So I'm able to see how people, even as they purport they're going to do whatever the court says, are really shaping things and how the court is really looking to them um, and deferring to them in quite large ways. Uh, and I think one of the interesting one of the interesting questions is once you realize that that can happen, uh, you start seeing it more and more. So it's you kind of, we normally think of the courts get really strong across time, Um, but I think what's actually happening is there's a lot of value in putting the courts out as the institution making the decision, and the courts are getting stronger as a result of that, but that they're also constantly looking to other parts of the government, that the courts are not independent actors um, who are running things entirely separate, uh, and that You know, there's the challenge for that, then is just doing the research of going into other archives and finding out who's influencing them and who's communicating with them and kind of how they're managing to send signals back and forth um, when ostensibly it's supposed to be a neutral proceeding. So they can't just say, tell us what to do and we'll do it, Um, but they can read up on things and be aware of them.
2: Yeah, it's definitely fascinating. And in terms of, you know, other parts of this story, um, you know, as your as the book cover shows and as you've mentioned already, Puerto Rico is not the only uh colony under US possession at this time. So how do the other colonies factor into Puerto Rican citizenship and statehood, particularly, as you point out, along lines of race, because all the men that you uh, introduce us to, the three men in the book, as you mentioned already, they all kind of claim whiteness. And that has, uh, and that influences the way in which they try and claim Puerto Rican statehood and citizenship.
1: This is one of those stories where it, you would expect the question of empire to be one where the answer would be there's this grand sweep of history and things were overdetermined in lots of ways. But in Puerto Rico's case, it turns out um, it's very contingent. So just before Puerto Rico's annex, the United States annexes Hawaii, which has fewer people than Puerto Rico, um, a higher proportion of whom are non-white, but uh, whites are hold the political power uh, in Hawaii at the time. And it's brought in under the Reconstruction Constitution. The people of Hawaii are recognized as citizens. They get full constitutional rights. As you know, Hawaii is now a state. And when Puerto Rico is occupied, and it's clear it's going to be annexed, but it hasn't yet been annexed, U.S. officials are acting as though it's going to be treated like Puerto Rico, and so they envision Puerto, or sorry, like Hawaii. So they envision Puerto Ricans as being future U.S. citizens. They envision Puerto Rico as a future U.S. state. And then in late October, President McKinley decides he wants to annex the Philippines too. So he's defeated Spain, and they're negotiating a peace treaty, and it's unclear what will happen. Philippines. And McKinley says, you have to give the Philippines to us. And when that happens, there's an enormous amount of constitutional thinking that goes on. And the basic question is, if we annex the Philippines, does that mean millions and millions of people who we think of as racially inferior are going to participate in our national government and be allowed to come over to the mainland United States and compete for jobs. And there's lots of Americans who are opposed to that. And so the challenge is to rethink constitutional law so that you can find a way to annex the Philippines while still excluding them from citizenship and statehood. And here, Puerto Rico becomes very helpful. What the strategy that gets come up with is to legislate for Puerto Rico in a way that's kind of stingy. Don't make them citizens, don't give them free trade, don't give them full rights, don't promise them statehood, and then see what the Supreme Court does. And if the Supreme Court says it's okay, then do the same thing in the Philippines. Uh, But they're quite explicit that if the Supreme Court says, nope, Puerto Ricans are future states, um, they're citizens, but the plan is to then de-annex the Philippines and try to be able to get rid of it before they have a Supreme Court holding on those islands. Um, The problem here is Puerto Ricans, uh, they would like to come in as a place where everyone understands that the majority is white, but they're going to run into some difficulties. One is We're at a moment where whiteness is itself being subdivided. And so Anglo-Saxon is sort of put up as the ideal. And people from Southern and Eastern Europe are thought of as being lesser forms of whiteness, um, a darker shade of pale, you might say. And um, so Spaniards are not thought of as being at the very top of the racial hierarchy in most US minds. Uh, Also, the island has a substantial population of color. And then once people, like once Congress starts treating the island badly, there's all these administrators who go over um, and they're going to, right, they're going to implement these new forms of governance that are colonial. And there's people that have voted on them. And everybody starts thinking of them as natural. Uh, and then they start thinking of Puerto Ricans as the kind of people who deserve this kind of government. And so there's a way that treating Puerto Ricans less generously then leads people to justify it by saying, well, they didn't deserve generous treatment. And so it makes their attempts to claim whiteness um, all the more difficult to execute. And so the you end up in this funny situation where The decision to annex the Philippines both changes the trajectory of Puerto Rico for legislative and constitutional purposes and also probably for race purposes. And then in this moment where racism is really a powerful ideology, once you've lost the ability to claim whiteness or once your claims to whiteness are more tenuous, it then gets much harder to make progress on the legal and political fronts. And so there's a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic that's going on.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting the ways in which, you know, the U.S.'s own racial, uh, you know, divides influence Puerto Ricans' own arguments um, and, you know, how the Philippines and other colonial possessions influence each other in terms of how the US is trying to go about incorporating them in a way that you know they end up as the Supreme Court says as an, as an unincorporated you know territory.
1: Yeah, it is a I mean it's one of the things that surprised me when I worked in this period was realizing just how much racism was the entire air everyone breathed that there was no escape from it at least among nearly every white person I was studying, um, and how long that lasted. So we know that by the end of World War II, there's this kind of reaction against what's happened in Germany. Um, And it's not as though racism disappears, but it's discredited to some degree. Uh, But for the period I study, which really runs into the mid-1920s for this book, it's pretty constant. Uh, You just racialize thinking um, structures almost everything. It's like a common sense for lots of people, uh, and it's also at times somewhat invisible because it's a common sense. They just take it as true that people have these racial characteristics um, and don't really see them as, you know, the result of the dynamics that have happened over the last ten or twenty years within the United States.
2: And so, how does the question of Puerto Rican citizenship? get resolved, you know, you, you speak about how, you know, it finally just has a question, the, it kind of just has to be solved at a certain point. So what is that point and how does it get solved? Well, the problem
1: initially after annexation is not only that everyone thinks the constitution means annexation brings citizenship right and statehood, but that they see them as bundled. So to the extent you're going to try to fight off this constitutional consequence, it's thought, well, if you do make a place citizens, then you're also promising them statehood and you're triggering full rights. And one other thing that happens over the next 20 years as officials and Puerto Ricans fight about um, all of these legal categories is that people become much more comfortable thinking of citizenship, statehood, and rights as separable, that you could make people citizens without giving them rights or statehood. And so as the United States prepares to enter World War I in 1917, and President Woodrow Wilson is talking about making the world safe for democracy and holding the United States out as an exemplar, the fact that Puerto Ricans don't have citizenship becomes embarrassing. And so Congress decides to make Puerto Ricans US citizens. It thinks that that will help with the international cause, but also to make clear that by doing so, it doesn't mean to expand Puerto Ricans' rights or to promise Puerto Rico eventual statehood. And so the moment of getting citizenship for Puerto Ricans is actually a moment of um, deconstructing the constitutional benefits that it was once thought would come with annexation. And because of that, the elected representative of Puerto Rico in Washington says, you know, I don't really want this citizenship. You're giving us a citizenship that just looks like a promise of holding us as a colony forever. And that's not much of a promise. Like we'd be willing to take statehood. Um, but s- a purely empty citizenship, stripped of rights, stripped of political participation, that doesn't really do us any good. And so this is, you know, citizenship has this kind of up and down over time where sometimes it's exalted as a status that's full of rights and it indicates lots of political membership and at other times people treat it very technically and narrowly oh, you can be a citizen, but that doesn't say anything about all these other things. Um, And so in this moment, we see it getting treated kind of technically and narrowly, uh, but because it always has this capacity to be more capacious, once Puerto Ricans have citizenship, they are able then to leverage it in all sorts of ways over the next century.
2: Yeah, I find it interesting the way in which, you know, the the World War One kind of forced the US's hand in this matter. And it, it kind of mirrors the ways in which um World War Two forced you know, the country's hand when it came to, you know, extending some sort of, you know, civil rights to uh, black Americans. Uh, The only difference is, as you pointed out, you know, the citizenship that Puerto Ricans get extended after um, the U.S. is preparing to enter the war is, you know, as Puerto Ricans recognize, pretty empty.
1: That's right. It is pretty empty. Um, But once you've got it, you've got it. And so, Puerto Ricans make it a lot less empty. Um, so, one thing that happened to Santiago Iglesias, the labor leader, he's able to go to the federal government and say, You're starting to do things for labor during World War One. The people I represent are American citizens. They should get the benefit of these new federal agencies and protections. Or Domingo Collazo, the prince who moves to New York, he realizes citizenship is what makes you an eligible voter in New York? And so he starts signing up Puerto Rican migrants to New York to vote and becomes a local political leader there. Um, More broadly, citizenship means you have the right of free movement within the United States. So the Philippines eventually becomes independent and Filipinos in the United States are in some cases deported. But Puerto Ricans, continue to be able to enter the United States. And as a result, there's now um, many more people of Puerto Rican descent living on the mainland than living on the island. Um, It's proven to be the basis of this mass migration um, that might not have been possible if they hadn't gotten citizenship. And so there's this funny way where at the very moment it happens, it seems like it might be narrow. but when you have sophisticated communities that play a long game, getting their foot in the door can sometimes be really powerful.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's always interesting in American history how people use at least at least for me, someone who studies citizenship, the way in people are the way people are able to use the status of citizenship to kind of get a foothold in there and expand it. You know, this happened with uh, pretty much any marginalized group in the United States, and Puerto Ricans, you know, they have this kind of long game that they're able to play, and eventually they might not be as happy with citizenship as you pointed out, but they do make it. Uh, Something that they can use at least in some cases,
1: yeah, it's a very powerful tool, and it's funny because it's a powerful tool that we can see in our current moment is one not everyone has equal access to, and so uh, there's this push that I'm sympathetic with that we should focus on human rights because those are universal, um, but sometimes governments are more responsive to citizenship, and so having it can be it can help communities that otherwise have difficulty getting footholds be able to make
2: progress. Yeah, and so I guess that's as good as any note to kind of ask you the final question here um, in terms of the work that you do what can we expect from you in the future? Um, you've got this amazing book, and you know people are going to go out, hopefully, after listening to this and buy it. But what can we expect from you in the future?
1: Well, I'm now working with a co-author, Nathan Kroll Rosenthal, on a question of the history of the assignment of citizenship or nationality or subjection at birth. And the idea here is we've long thought the united states was what's called a jus soli country a country where if you are born in the united states and you're not born into an indian tribe and you're not the kid of an ambassador you are automatically a citizen of the united states or in the colonial period a subject of england and that general rule right the process i described has largely held true over time but the notion that it has this name this latin name jus soli Which is ancient. um, It turns out that that notion came up relatively recently in the long history of the United States and its colonial predecessors. Um, It made it to the United States from Europe sometime probably in the 1870s or 1880s. Um, And so, what we're working on now is trying to figure out before there was this international language of citizenship or nationality as a result of birth in a place, how was it um, that people in the United States or perhaps in the North Atlantic more broadly thought about the assignment of belonging at birth? And in the United States, that suggests that we may be able to see interesting dynamics around American Indians and around free African-Americans and around people living in territories. These are all places where people's belonging was thought to be less than complete. Um, And we've tended to look at them through this lens of just solely. Uh, And so once we're freed from that particular kind of way of interpreting the past, we're going to go back and try to see, do other concerns or other frameworks start to present themselves to us.
2: That sounds very interesting. Well, hopefully when that's done, we can have you back on the program and talk about that as well.
1: That sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, and thank you so much for doing this. This has been really fun.
2: Yeah, it was it was great to speak with you. Well, thank you Dr. Erman for coming on the program. Thank you. All right.